Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of me with grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Any of you all uh, trying to spark joy in your life or get rid of the stuff that isn't? Uh, Marie Kondo is a a Japanese uh, author and kind of motivational speaker uh, who focuses on kind of helping people get organized. And she's written a number of books. Uh, Some of them have been translated into uh, dozens of languages in over 30 countries. Uh, the most popular of which is the life-changing magic of tidying up. Uh, And it does seem like magic sometimes uh, when we actually get around to it. Uh, It almost never happens, uh, at least on my part. It's been published in more than 30 countries. It led to a Netflix series uh, based on the title of that book that has become pretty popular. And her philosophy is essentially to try and reduce the number of things that we are owning and managing and keeping, focus on the things that really spark joy and treasure them and get rid of the stuff that doesn't spark joy. You, you get it all together by category in your room and if it doesn't, you look at it and if it doesn't spark joy, you get rid of it. Well, it's really become quite popular, and so, of course, some people have latched onto this and uh, had a little bit of fun with it. One lady wrote on the internet, uh, I took her advice to heart, and I got rid of my electric bill, my weight uh, scales, uh, my visa bill, and uh, my vegetables. Uh, One guy wrote, we Marie Kondo'd our company, and we don't have any managers left. And uh, somebody else said, if I got rid of everything in my life that doesn't spark joy, I would be standing out by the curb with my dog and my coffee maker. (laughs) She really does hit on some, I think, significant and serious principles that she surfaces. Uh, Living a life of contentment and gratitude, uh, treasuring what matters, and focusing on what's important. Uh, Those are things we don't kind of do naturally, even though I think we like to think we do that. Uh, Partly it's because we live in a culture that is constantly telling us to buy one more thing, have one more experience, accumulate something else, and that thing will spark joy and be the secret to the good life. If you just get this latest product, this newest thing, the thing that everyone else has, then life will be good and you'll be satisfied. And it never works, of course, because there's always one more thing to get. I think another reason Marie Kondo has struck a nerve is because uh, we have too many things, frankly. 
And you see that, for example, in the number of young people that are much less interested in acquiring stuff. And frankly, they're really not interested in acquiring our stuff. Uh, so just as a heads up, um, your kids, your grandkids, are growing less and less interested in collecting your old furniture, jewelry, china, silverware, uh, and collectibles. So plan ahead now to figure out what you want to do with all that stuff, uh, because for a lot of reasons, uh, young people are not into that. Uh, many young people would much rather spend their time and their money on experiences and travel and doing things with people that they can remember. And, and I can relate to that. I mean, I would much rather have a trip to Italy than a new dining room set. That seems like a no-brainer to me. But that in itself, if you think about it, the acquiring experiences can be another kind of a self-focused life, just as much as acquiring more stuff. I'm acquiring stories and maybe even a reputation for having a cool and engaging life. It pleases me. Whether it's things or experiences, there's, there's something in us, though, that wants others to treasure what we have found important. Whether we're trying to hand off things or whether we want people to experience or enjoy or appreciate what we've been able to do. And all of us want to experience contentment and gratitude. And I think deep down, we really do want to feel like we're focusing our lives on what really matters, on what's important. So what is that? What is important? Well, we're starting a new series today called Light in the Darkness. It's based on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Christians in Philippi. And hopefully we can all recognize there's plenty of darkness in the world. Sometimes it's obvious, you know, like the book of Job, suffering, sickness, tragedy, injustice, deceit, oppression, brokenness. Sometimes the darkness isn't as obvious, though. Peace and prosperity and personal freedom and power can have their own kind of darkness that come with them that's not as obvious. And the world around us, of course, tells us that we can have it all, we can make sense of life, and, and we can get life to work for us without any reference to God. Now, that's a lot like the world that these Philippians were living in. Philippi was a prosperous Roman colony in the province of Macedon. The city was filled with people of status and wealth and education and accomplishment. It was a lot like our world. And Paul is writing into that world out of a circumstance where it looked like he had a lot of darkness around him. I mean, he's in prison. He may be released or he may be executed. He's got this constant burden for the churches under his care. He's, you know, this whole litany of trials and difficulties he's been through in preaching the gospel. And now People are coming in after him and telling people in the churches, oh, you know, you can't really trust Paul, and if he were any good as an apostle, why would he be in prison anyway? And yet Paul is writing this letter of joy and gratitude to say there is light in the darkness because God shines his light, the light of his life to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we follow Jesus, we discover true values and real life and lasting glory. 
that outshines anything we can experience in this world or in this life. So that's what sparks joy. That's what Paul is getting at. If you haven't already, then go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Philippians in the New Testament or pull out your handy brand new shiny Philippians study journal. And we're going to look at the first eight verses of chapter one in Philippians as we see how God shines his light into our lives in what we might call gospel partnership. That comes from this section in verses 3 through 5, where Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel. Gospel there is this word in Greek that simply means a good news or an important story. It was an announcement of some really important event that had profound implications for how we live life. It wasn't necessarily religious. It was news of a military victory or a birth of a new emperor, and heralds or messengers would go out and spread this good news, this evangel, which is where we get our evangelism. And partnership that Paul mentions here is koinonia. It's this word that we've talked about recently. It means fellowship, sharing in, participation, having in common. It can be based on anything, a, a joint business venture, sports, common experiences. Uh, I was in a social fraternity, a Greek fraternity in college with about 35 other guys, and we lived together, and we ate together, and we had all kinds of really stupid, ill-advised adventures together. Uh, we even called each other brothers. But it's been hard over the years to maintain those relationships, not just because we live in different parts of the country, but because I find that we don't share a lot in common anymore. I was a very different person when I was in college, and since coming to faith in Christ, I've become very much less interested in trying to find fellowship and engagement around you know, trying to relive Animal House and being crazy on the weekend and things that I now regret. The heart of true partnership is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Partnership is about self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. And Christian fellowship, then, is about laying down our desires and preferences for conforming ourselves together to the gospel. And, and there's hopefully warmth and intimacy and connection there that we'll talk about later, but it's fundamentally about a shared vision of what is important that calls for commitment. That's what partnership is. And if you look at how Paul starts this letter in verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's important because... There are spiritual realities here that, that are packed in those words that remind us of what the gospel is. Grace from God, undeserved goodness for our sin, and peace for troubled spirits. Grace for our weaknesses, and peace in our fears. Grace to our spiritual bankruptcy, and peace in knowing that in Christ we are rich beyond measure. That's what God gives us in Christ Jesus grace and peace, and there's no peace without knowing God's grace. 
But when we come to know God's goodness to us, we see it as the comprehensive response to all of our brokenness and all that God is doing in this world. And so we have in Christ a better gospel, a better news, and a more meaningful partnership. Let's look at how Paul unpacks that for us. First of all, gospel partnership gives us a real identity. It helps us understand what our real identity is, who we are. Look back at the greeting at the very beginning. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, the word there is douloi, the plural of doulos. Our English versions clean this up because it's not really servants. Anytime this word appears in the Greco-Roman world, it means slaves. It's bond servants, people who are not at liberty for their own lives. Now, we have to try and disengage ourselves mentally from our own ugly, tragic American experience of race-based slavery. That was not Roman slavery. It was certainly belonging to a master, but not like our American experience. But the point here is, look at who is saying this. This is the Apostle Paul, the, the great theologian, the missionary, the church planner, the apostle, the man who wrote the majority of the New Testament. And Timothy, his, his lieutenant, his kind of second-in-command, a man to whom he entrusts apostolic authority, a man whom he gives leadership over churches. These men who shaped the fabric of our faith, who describe themselves as slaves of Jesus Christ. We live and our lives are identified by conforming ourselves to Jesus and to his pattern, to go where he sends, to say what he says. That is the basis of usefulness and effectiveness in Christian ministry, Paul is pointing out. Not our skills, not our gifts, not our experience, not our education, not our status in society. Paul's writing this from prison. And he's saying, I am there as a slave of Jesus Christ. That's what makes us great in the kingdom and connects us to one another. Sacrificial, servant-hearted, self-giving for one another and the cause of Christ. Look at the prayer that Paul offers here. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel. I'm sure of the one who began a good work will complete it in you. I hold you in my heart. You're all partakers with me of grace. God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. As I was reading through this, boy, I was struck by how much better I could do at praying for my brothers and sisters here at Faith Church in this way because of a partnership in the gospel that we have for one another. What if this was the pattern of how we regularly prayed about each other and prayed for each other with deep gratitude? with compassion, with love, with interest, with recognition of how we have impacted one another, with lifting one another up. 
It's not a joyful prayer that Paul offers because of what they've given him, because of what they can do for him, because how they can advance his career, because how they make him feel, because of what they've given to him, but because they are partners in the gospel. I think there's something significant that uh, Paul addresses it even to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. The, the, the overseers, the elders, the pastors, and deacons are part of that congregation, but they're not lifted above them. They're part of the saints. Paul doesn't elevate them to some higher level. He's praying this for all of them, for one another. And what if that was how we prayed for each other? Because we are an assembly of saints. Now, since the rise of medieval Roman Catholicism, this word saint has taken on this meaning of, you know, someone who's especially super holy or extraordinarily pious or, or righteous in themselves. You know, we, we come to use the word saint in that way, like, uh, boy, my mom had the patience of a saint when I was a teenager, and she needed it, let me assure you. That's not how the New Testament uses the word saint. Saint and holy and sanctify all come from the same root, and they're all connected. A saint is literally a holy one. It's God's people, those who belong to Christ and have been set apart to live with Him and for Him. A decisive change has happened in your life if you have come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. An old way of life has passed away, and this is now your identity. You are a saint. You are one of God's holy ones. You're one of the ones he has called out of the world and set apart to live for him. It it changes how you see yourself and and how you see one another. It doesn't mean there's there's no remaining sin in our lives. I mean, obviously, Amelia can tell you that about me or any of the people on staff or most of you. But that's true of all of us. It doesn't mean it's not true. And and we may not feel like saints at any given moment. But if you are in Christ Jesus, that is the truth about you and about one another. And that changes how we see each other, how we treat each other, how we speak to, speak about one another. Paul's saying something has happened in your heart. An old dictator, an old rule has been overthrown uh, like... You know, the images from World War II of the swastika coming down off the Reichstag building. It's done. It's finished. That reign has ended. And maybe there are still pockets of resistance. And maybe the messages are still out there, the lies that are whispering to you from, from dark holes hidden somewhere, maybe even inside you at times. But that is not your identity. That sin, that that has no power over you anymore because the power of sin has been canceled at the cross. And so now we live as God's saints and holy ones and He is making us into what He has declared us to be. Is that how you see yourself? Righteous, redeemed, beloved, one in whom God is at work to make you look like Jesus because that is who you are, saint of God. And that is how we see one another. Gospel partnership with each other changes what this community looks like because we see ourselves and each other as people who are holy and set apart and loved and belonging to God. 
Gospel partnership gives us a real identity that's grounded in humility and an amazing confidence at the same time. Confidence in what God declares us to be and in what he is doing in our lives. Gospel partnership brings a real confidence as well. Not just identity, but confidence. Look at what Paul says in verse 6. I am confident, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Does that give you hope and confidence? You see, God has committed himself to you and to the work he is doing in you. He will preserve you as you persevere in him. And he is confident, Paul says, as he's writing to these people that God who began that work in you will complete it. Because you see, coming to Christ was not about you, you know, sort of kickstarting your own moral self-improvement project. It was about coming from spiritual death to life. It was God's work to help you see the value and the treasure and the beauty of Christ in a way that you didn't before. And if he began that work in you, Paul says, it's not up to you to gin up your enthusiasm or your effort or your righteousness to confirm it all the way to the end. God is the one who works in you to will and to do according to his pleasure. God will complete the work he has started in you. Do not doubt that. Don't give up on what God is doing in you because we all get tired at times, right? We're, we're running a race, it feels like, and we're out of gas and all we can see is the next hurdle in front of us or our sins and failures right here and I have no more energy to go on and, and I don't see how I'm going to make it to the end. This is where we need to come back to this promise and Remind ourselves of it, that the God who started this work is the one who lives in you to empower you, to move you, to help you live and obey just as Jesus did. We are kept to the end because of what Christ has done, because of Jesus' righteousness, because of his work for us and his work in us. In Christ, by the Holy Spirit, Paul says, God will inexorably, undoubtedly, and ultimately bring you all the way to the finish. And he is at work doing that now. That is his promise. It is his character that guarantees that what he has completed in you, he will begin. Oh, how we need to know that we are in God's hands, together as his people, not just individually. We look at one another as people in whom God is working right now. And we have to remind ourselves that for ourselves and each other, because if I take a snapshot of my life, at any given moment, I may not look very much like I'm persevering to the end. We have to remind ourselves that for each other, too, that that moment of impatience, that, that harsh word, the sarcastic email, we all stumble and fall in many ways, but we are in this together, and love covers over a multitude of sins, so we pour grace into each other, because he who began a good work 
in me, in you, in all of us will complete it? Do you believe that for each other? Are you reminding each other of that and encouraging each other in that? I ran across a fascinating article, interview with Tess Brigham, who is a psychotherapist working primarily with young adults. And uh, over the last five years of practice, she says she's noticed a dominant theme that uh, many young people are coming to her saying, I have too many choices and I can't figure out what to do. What if I make the wrong choice? And she says, people are more likely to regret their choices when they have too many choices to pick from. We feel like we're either going to make bad choices or we make good choices, but then second-guess ourselves later because something else comes along, or we just get paralyzed with all the options and we do nothing, which is ironically, of course, a choice in itself, right? Do, Do you see what Paul is saying here? God began a good work in you, and He's going to complete it. If, if we're putting some rails on our lives to be guided by His Word, we still may have a thousand options in front of us, but God is not setting you up for failure. He's not, you know, like going to pull the rug out from under you and, and then laugh at, you know, how you fell for that one. God is at work to do good in us. And that gives us great confidence, not just for the struggles and trials that we're going through, but for all the choices and decisions that we have to make in life. And that helps us encourage one another in all those choices and decisions that we're going through as well. Rather than being paralyzed by the prospect of too many options and wondering if I'm going to make the wrong one, we encourage each other. We come together for the purpose of speaking wisdom and hope and and blessing into each other's lives and reminding each other of this promise that God who began a good work in you will complete it. He is at work even now. That gives us amazing confidence as God's community. I am a gospel partner with other people who are also in process so that we give grace to one another. We're patient with each other. It grows us in kindness and understanding with each other. Because we are not yet perfected, one day we will be. And that helps us encourage each other. And that's the third thing that's really going on here. I think that Paul is saying in this introduction that gospel partnership produces a deep, caring relationship that nothing else can. Partnership in the gospel produces the kind of deep relationship that nothing else can. Look at how Paul gives thanks here. This is not just checking off a list of things that I I ought to be praying for. In all my prayers, I make all my prayer with joy. I'm sure that he who began a good work will bring it to completion. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. Because you are partakers of grace with me. I have joy in seeing what God is doing in your life. You know, when we read that, it kind of automatically raises the question for us, what is it that does spark joy in me? I mean, Maybe it's the new tennis shoes or the new car or whatever. It's not that that's inherently wrong. 
And what is it that sparks joy in us? For Paul, it's seeing partnership in the gospel with these brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe joy for us is success or career advancement or recognition or wealth or our kids doing well. None of those things are inherently wrong, but I think Paul's reflecting this attitude that John writes in his epistle, I have no greater joy than to know my children are walking in the truth. What would it look like for that to be our greatest joy for one another? That our lives would be filled with joy to see our brothers and sisters growing in the gospel and coming more alive in Christ, and that, that we could be a part of that. I hold you in my heart, Paul says. I yearn for you, in verse 8, with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul may have been writing here in the background of kind of Stoic philosophy that discouraged people from, you know, making big commitments and getting emotionally involved. It was, you know, sort of the forerunner of Mr. Spock on Star Trek. You know, like, stay calm, stay collected, be in control of your emotions, don't be vulnerable. But that was not Paul's way. And can, can you hear his love and his heart pouring out here? God is my witness. How I yearn for you, how I long to see you and, and to be with you. My whole life and, and thought and prayer are bound up with you. Now, that sounds like a lot of emotion. And can I just say, white church folks, it's okay to show some emotion. We can hug one another. We can get an amen. We could raise our arms. And I'm not saying you have to. But I'm saying it's okay if you actually like even move rhythmically a little when we're singing. Because this is not some stoic, I've got it all under control and look how respectable I am, Christianity, that Paul is modeling here. I, I love you, I long for you, I yearn for you. My heart goes out to you, Paul is saying. When those expressions of gratitude and praise and love flow out of us, towards one another, Paul is saying. What would that look like for us? Because Paul's not ashamed to, to show even physical expressions of this in, in how he talks about these people. His circumstances aren't particularly joyful. I mean, did you see that there? You are partakers with me of grace in verse 7 in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. They, they were willing to be identified with Paul in his imprisonment. Now, we, we read that as sort of a fact, but think about that. Like, your pastor got arrested and thrown in jail for being a public enemy for preaching the gospel. And you're going to identify with him. Yes, we have the pastor who's in jail. That's shameful, right? And Paul is pushing back against that. And he's saying, how beautiful that is, that, that you are with me in this because of the relationship that we have. I mean, it's not an act. It's not showmanship. He's not trying to pump them up or, you know, get them all excited about him particularly. 
It just comes through his, his love and, and relationship with these people. My brothers, you whom I long for, you are my delight and my joy in, in chapter 4. And what is it that makes that connection? See, Paul isn't reminiscing about the, the great times they had watching the games in the arena or the delicious meals that they shared together or the intellectually stimulating discussions that they had, and, and maybe all those things happen. The center of this relationship, of this connection, of this partnership, is the sharing together in the mission and the calling and the life of Jesus Christ. What is it that ties us together? What do we talk about when we get together? Sure, sports and weather and health and family and work and money and kids and God cares about all those things. Of course those are going to come up in conversation because God cares about all of our lives. But are we also connecting in a way that is building the gospel into each other's lives? Not just, obviously what Jesus did on the cross is central to our faith, but the gospel is so much broader than that. Everything that God wants to do to redeem and restore us and the world around us. So, as we're talking about our family and our work and our money and our health and our kids, can we bring the gospel into that in, in terms of what we want God to be doing in those situations and how we're praying for one another, how we're bearing one another's burdens, how we're helping one another, how, how we're encouraging and helping each other and praying to to see the gospel advance in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and, and through our relationships. Because nothing else will bind us together. Nothing else gives the basis for this kind of partnership. But the gospel of Jesus Christ that can bring together young and old, rich and poor, black and white, first generation, 10th generation immigrants, educated, uneducated, blue collar, white collar, different personalities. The gospel is the only basis we have for this kind of partnership that crosses all of those boundaries and distinctions. Not that they don't matter, but the gospel is the basis for this kind of identity and confidence and relationship. Today, we're celebrating this uh, ambassador's project, at least the almost, almost, almost finalization of the construction part of it. And man, that will spark joy in me, let me tell you. When we are finally done with all the meetings and the planning and the revisions and, oh, we ran into this problem and what are we going to do now and we've got to swap this thing out and, and all the dust and all the disruption and the dumpster in the parking lot and, and all of it, it's going to be done. That'll be awesome, right? I mean, it already looks great. Beautiful, freshly painted walls and new carpet and, and comfortable, nice furniture to sit on and a cafe and a welcome center and new signs and, and, and all of it. It looks great. But what a disaster it would be if it's just another neat thing that we acquired for ourselves or an experience that we went through together that, you know, 20 years from now we'll reminisce about, oh, remember when we did that? That was great, the good old days. No, this is about gospel partnership, Lord willing.
This isn't about us. It's about God working through us and bringing us together as we're growing in his light and growing in sacrifice and partnership together to declare the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. That this is a place where we come to worship God, to go deep with him and with one another as a community so that then we go out reflecting his light into the world around us. That's what this project is about. That's what the church is about. That's what our lives are about. Real identity, serious confidence, deep relationships that are united around the gospel of Christ in a life-transforming way. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for all these promises and all the hope that you give us in Christ. Lord, we look around us and we don't see a world that's maybe objectively dark like a lot of really dangerous places in the world, and yet we can see darkness in us and darkness around us, and we want you to shine the light of your gospel into us all the more. Grow us as your community that we would be united around Jesus and who he is and what he is doing for your glory and for our joy. We pray as your people. Amen.